Speaking, thank you so much for coming to this Spectator panel on how to care for people living with long-term health conditions. And uh, thank you very much to Abby for sponsoring this event as well. I'm Isabel Hardman, I'm the Assistant Editor at The Spectator. Just finished uh, a book on the NHS, which you can buy now, I just thought I'd drop that <laughs> in. And we've just got such a wonderful uh, panel, um, really a real spread of expertise, uh, government experience in and out of government now, and industry as well. So I think we're going to have a really good discussion for the next hour. I'm joined by Guy Opperman, who is the Minister for Employment, uh, Richard Sloggett, who is the founder of Future Health Research, Lord Markham, who is the Parliamentary Undersecretary of State uh, at the Department of Health, uh, Todd Manning, who is the VP and General Manager at ADVI, and Georgina Carr, who is the Chief Executive of the Neurological Alliance. Now, long-term health conditions, well, the title of this uh, fringe event is the 26 million, which just gives you a sense of the scale of uh, this problem uh, that the government uh, has to grapple with. Long-term health conditions have become, I think, more salient over the past few years, partly as a result of the pandemic, partly as a result of our tight labour market. And it's been really interesting as a political journalist seeing the way in which the Department for Work and Pensions and the Department of Health have started to work more closely together. And I'm really looking forward to, to hearing from, uh, from our ministers and from our experts about how they've seen the landscape change as well. Now, in terms of the format of this event, uh, we're going to hear from each of the speakers. They're going to give us some opening thoughts, have a discussion amongst ourselves with you listening in, and then we're going to open up to questions from the floor. Um, but uh, I think we'll, we'll let Guy uh, open with some thoughts, and then we'll move along the panel. So, sure. Thank you. Uh, so, uh, good morning. Uh, so, my name is Guy Opperman. I'm the MP for Hexham. I'm the Minister for Employment. Uh, I used to be the Minister for Pensions, and then I did a 44-day sabbatical, courtesy of Liz Truss, where I got to know my wife and family better. And then Rishi brought me back into government when Sanity returned to government. So uh, the blunt truth is that my job is twofold. It is to try and bring the vacancies down in this country whilst uh, marrying up those who are unemployed into employment, and also to retain those people who are in employment. Uh, and I speak as somebody who has uh, two uh, parents, who, one of whom is severely disabled, the other has advanced dementia, and I'm acutely conscious of the long-term issues on healthcare that, without a shadow of a doubt, is affecting all of our families and all of our uh, grandparents on an ongoing basis as longevity continues, but with it, the allied health conditions that we'll probably be discussing today. I think we can have a discussion about allocation of resources, but without a shadow of a doubt, the investment by government in the NHS goes up and up and up and up. But the question is, are we allocating those resources in the appropriate way? And are we being uh, sufficiently long-term in our approach to that? Looking forward to interventions by people who know things better than that. I, 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 try and, I think the way in these things is that you want to try and come up with individual policy suggestions that might actually uh, frame the debate. And I would give you basically three. The first is... At I take Isabel's point, which is we are trying to work in a much more integrated way in government. So traditionally, government is extremely silo, right? Uh, but I'm on an IMG. For those of you who don't know what that means, it means an interministerial group, uh, which is uh, basically chaired by DLUC, by the Department for Leveling Up and Michael Gove. 
But I sit next to Neil O'Brien, the health minister, and I sit next to uh, Rob Haltham, the employment, uh, the education and skills minister. And we are trying to address how we address long-term problems in deprived communities, exactly the sort of communities that we're talking about. And DLUC have allocated uh, a significant hundreds of millions of pounds to those 20 communities from Blackpool to Blyde to Grimsby to Sandwell to Hull, all across the country, which is areas of deprivation which have healthcare issues, but also have economic um, uh, problems holding them back. And that integration of services is surely the way ahead. Uh, the second is, uh, we're doing a lot at DWP, so I am pioneering. If you go to a job centre at the moment, many of the reasons why people are falling out of employment is because of musculoskeletal problems. There are other issues as well, but so we're pioneering in job centres up and down the country, uh, having uh, physiotherapists and uh, MSK specialists in. I'd like to go further, frankly, and have more in. It's, we're in pilot stages. But, but the simple point is this. You come to see me for a job and to receive your welfare benefits and just get the support of a job centre. We should then say, come and see Jane over here or Fred over here, who is a physiotherapist, who will get you fit and well for employment as well and tackle the barriers that are holding you back. We're doing similar stuff in that we're trying to get into GPs so that when you have a fit note saying you're no longer fit for work, you should then meet the disability employment advisor. We have 500 DEAs up and down the country who are there to say, you know, people are disabled, but they're in work. We have millions more people in work than we used to have uh, who, are in, who have disability conditions. And just because you are unfit for work in some contexts does not mean in any way that you're unfit for work in all contexts. And we need to address that. And my final one is I'll give a proper policy suggestion, uh, which is uh, I'm a massive admirer of All Matters uh, Dutch in terms of how they look after their elderly and how they look after their um, long-term ill. And they, the treble donut is pioneered in a place called Hoigovic, which you'll all now try and spell, and you will then uh, fail complete, comprehensively. But Hoigovic is just outside uh, Amsterdam, and the treble donut is a community, and this is the sort of community I want to see, which has uh, residential housing on the outside, then it has a retirement village on the inside, and in the centre, it has a care home. And generations move from one to t'other to t'other. And as the elderly person uh, in, the, in a relationship of two 85-year-olds, one gets dementia at an advanced stage, the other has, has their faculties. And that one who has dementia goes into the care home, but doesn't really know that they've actually moved out of the community because it's all so integrated. That is the goal going forward, and I think... If I had one policy suggestion for successive governments going forward, the treble donut, which obviously on an obesity debate one would normally imagine would be something delicious and creamy and jammy, is not actually. It is the future of care homes, and I leave you with that. Thank you very much for making us think of donuts, Guy. Richard, you told me just before we um, uh, started speaking that uh, you're actually doing a PhD on the allocation of resources, and Guy mentioned whether there's uh, a correct allocation of resources at the moment. So uh, can you fast forward however many years you've got left of your doctorate to tell us what the answer is? <laughs> uh, how long have you got? Um, I think Guy made... There's a theme of what ran through what Guy said. And it's something we've talked about a lot in healthcare about for a long, 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 long time which is integration. And it's how do you join up services around people rather than have people having to go to individual services, whether that's within a health system or beyond the health system. That 
has always been something we talked about for a long, 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 long time. And there are now, I think, new opportunities coming up, coming around with integrated care systems and others to actually try and do this properly. One of the issues I'm looking at at the moment is, is smoking rates. And obviously, there are big inequalities in smoking rates between different parts of the country. But some of the best interventions can be through citizens' advice practices, through job centres, as Guy said. Can you make the advice easily accessible for people so that they can pick it up and start to drive with it? We can't all keep going through the GP gateway. Mm. Are there other ways to think slightly differently? On the, on the kind of question and the topic of long-term conditions and the, 20, the 26 million, I think what's really interesting from a policy structural perspective is the journey that we are on. The government's committed to something called a major conditions strategy, which is looking at this. And if you look at the sort of germination evolution of that, you can see how thinking is emerging, which is taking us in a different direction from where we've been before. If you go back 20 years, the big problem in healthcare, which is the same problem we have now, is about access to care. But what the government did at the time was it created national frameworks, constitutional standards, and national strategies for conditions. So we had a cancer strategy, we had a cardiovascular strategy, we had a mental health strategy. We actually had something called national service frameworks to start with, and then they formed, turned themselves into strategies. It was that nationally, we're going to get the right people around the table, build the, build, build the right approach, and we're going to drive it through on a condition-by-condition condition basis. The world we find ourselves in now is slightly different because what we've got is an ageing aging society and a demographic shift, which is meaning that more and more people have more than one condition. So what you have is I think one in four people in the country now have two or more conditions. If you're over 85, I think you're 80% likely to have two-plus conditions. And health service design and policy design is not necessarily set up to deal with that. So the question for how to improve care for people with long-term conditions is how do you design a system in a way that gets patients and people more quickly into the places they need to be so you can do the prevention and the upstream stuff so that you don't then see them down and downstream in a more uh, crisis-based type of, type of situation. So from a policy structural design perspective, that's very much where we've got to. The big challenge is that and there was a study done in 2017-18 which looked at about 8 million people who'd been to hospital. And they said, we're going to look at what conditions these people have and see if we can cluster them. So are there particular conditions that are more prevalent amongst people? And there are, but care, but care is so personal that actually of the 8 million people, they found 60,000 different ways in which you can, uh, of different dynamics around their conditions. 3.2% was the highest number for a particular set of conditions. So again, when you're, in, when you're nationally setting policy, how do you do it when care, care and health is becoming so much more personal? And what you've got to try and do is you've got to shift the power of care downstream in the system towards more local areas and local delivery. Where local areas know that in Hexham, they know what their populations need, so the, the, but the challenge from a central policymaker perspective is you're hauled in front, Nick's hauled in front, of, uh, Nick Markham's hauled in front of the Lords to say, what are you doing about this particular thing? And saying I've delegated it down to an integrated care system is not politically <laughs> a particularly sensible thing to say. You have to sort of say, well, we've got this national plan and we're doing all these things. But from a policymaker perspective, that shift is really, really important. And I think what we've seen with the major condition strategy is exactly that. When you go back to January and you read the announcement, what the announcement said in January was, we're going to pick these six conditions, and we're going to do cancer, cardiovascular, mental health. But beneath that was, actually, we've got this problem with multimorbidity. And the reason the announcement was framed like that was because previous secretaries of state, of which there have been a few, have all committed to a new cancer strategy, a new dementia plan, and a new everything else. So it was a fudge. 
But now we're in all, uh, we've gone through August when the, when the most recent paper was put out. The strategy is much more now about multi-morbidity care. And how do you design systems in a way which does, which does that? And I'll finish by just talking about some of the solutions and things that we need to figure out in order to make this shift happen. Because it is actually quite uncomfortable for people who want to go into bat for particular conditions to say, we've got to try and, and how, do we do, how do we improve cancer care, but also acknowledge that people with cancer have you know, a range of other things that they, they will need. And how in you know, this cash strap system, which is under huge amounts of pressure, where we've got strikes today, how do we do it? I think one of the things we really need to do is we actually need to invest in research. So if you look at the NIHR, they did a big kind of uh, systemic review in 2021. And they basically said, we don't know enough about this. We don't collect the right data. If you, go to, if you look at the quality and outcomes framework in GP surgeries, you collect a register for blood pressure, you collect a register for dementia, you collect, you're not necessarily joining those dots up, particularly when continuity of care in primary care has mostly gone. Not always, but it has in a number of different places. So tracking the patient, it used to be you would see the same GP, they'd be able to follow you. If you're not seeing the same GP and you're being moved into a more network model, you need the data and you need the information to be, to be interconnected. The final thing we need to try and do, which is sort of links exactly back to, where, to what Guy was talking about, is how do you link non-medical medical services? Mm. And how do you get different bits of government and local government to kind of work together on models where, again, resources finite. We can't keep channeling money into specific services. It's how do you join them up? And the challenge there is as well, culturally, <coughs> practically, how do you make the changes happen? We've talked about some of these things for a long, long time. Funding flows, incentives, uh, NHS and local government's history goes back a long, 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 long way. It's not been easy. Um, so, yeah, there's this whole design piece, which I think is really, really important for actually how we try and fix this, which, yeah, links back very much to what Guy was saying on trying to make things more integrated, top, middle and bottom. Thank you very much. Now, Lord Markham, we've been talking so far really as though you are working in, in a silo, and I'd, I'd love your perspective of what it's like inside the silo, but actually one of the things I've really noticed from both our speakers so far is just the way in which actually long-term health conditions are often treated within silos as well. So it's not possible to have somebody who has obesity but also a mental health condition considered you know, it holistically. Um, so how are you breaking down the silos inside your silo? No, and I, is it quite dark in there? <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully not too dark, but um, I mean, I think that's, that's right. I think the problem is that you know, hospitals become almost the treatment of the last resort, mm. that everyone, you know, just about half the people who go into A&E don't need to go to A&E. They you know, could have had primary care or, you know, 60% of kids under 10 turn up with dental issues. Um, likewise, at the other end of the chain, um, you know, a lot of um, patients are still in hospital because there's not the social care places. So, you know, we become centred around the hospital and what happens in the hospital. But absolutely what Richard was just saying towards trying to break down those silos is what we're trying to do about the major conditions strategy. And that is really making it a patient-led approach. And the four kind of strands of thinking around all that is firstly prevention, Secondly, early diagnosis. Thirdly, quality treatment. And then fourth, uh, living and dying with that major condition. And so if you think of each of those in terms, you know, probably the most important of all of those is the prevention ag agenda um, about it all. Um, and, you know, there's some, great, there's some great examples of it. You know, Red Hill, for instance, I've seen GP surgery. They take their, you know, frequent flyers so to speak, and they really go there and uh, they, they try and get ahead of the problem. And, you know, technology 
gives us an opportunity now to really, instead of just having a mass screening program, really tailor it in terms of people's patient you know, history and uh, genetic makeup and everything else. And the second thing towards that is putting much more res responsibility in the individual's hands. Um, you know, we're relaunching the app. I look after everything technology-wise as well. So you really have the, you know, just like you have your banking and your, you know, everything at your fingertips in terms of what you might want to do on your phone banking-wise and social media and everything else, giving your health records, looking at your background um, and suggesting a personalised screening program based on it, probably for a lot of us saying don't drink as much as you do, but uh, whether we will pay attention to that or not, we'll see. But really giving you that individual tailored um, uh, kind of approach to it all, I think, is, is key towards it all. That's the prevention. In terms of the early diagnosis, is really, again, trying to understand, taking it to the, um, the, you know, the diagnosis to um, the location that it needs to be. So we've been doing a lot of um, now mobile lung, lung cancer screening. And you know, massively changed from, it used to be the case that 60% of people weren't detected for lung cancer until they were stage four. With these mobile, you know, by stage four, unfortunately, it's pretty much too late. Now, actually, with these mobile screening, we can, you know, we're getting about 60% at stage one and two. So, so massive changes. And as Richard was just saying, instead of having the GP as the bottleneck, you know, generally an individual knows if there's something wrong with them. And the GP is generally told, look, refer them on. Unless you're really, really sure, then you should refer them on. So, you know, 95% plus of the time, they're just referring them on. So, you know, why have that bottleneck? Let trust people to know their own bodies well enough to actually to be able to go and self-refer and then send them straight to the, the, the diagnostic centre. So, um, you know, what we're trying to do in this major condition strategy is all about um, the patient-centred rather than the silos. So you work against that, acknowledging, as you say, that, you know, if you're, if you're um, over 80, then 85% of people have two or more of these conditions. So you have to work about how you work them together. And, and the last point in terms of living and dying well with it all, you know, it's exactly the treble donut type of approach in terms of you know, really understanding that. And I think there's something, I hope we'll have time to talk about this a bit more later on, but you know, there's some grown-up conversations I think we need to have as well about, you know, we'll have a birth plan, but you know, what sort of death plan? Do, you know, do, you, you know, do I want to be rushed into a hospital? when I'm near the end of life? For, for a lot of people, the answer is no, and let's be you know, grown up about some of the implications of that as well. Thank you very much. Um, I love the idea of a, of a death plan, although given I'm in the age bracket where lots of my friends are giving birth, I would say that most people's birth plans do not come to pass in any way, shape, or form. So we might need to think about that. Todd, I'd be really interested in hearing from you about how, I suppose, the, the most dominant long-term conditions that you're dealing with and sort of trends in managing them as well. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And, um, I mean, AbbVie is here today because we're launching a campaign called The Forgotten Majority, and it speaks to this 26 million people with long-term conditions that oftentimes don't get a lot of, get a lot of headlines. But when you look at the, um, the statistics, what you find is that... Um, 50% of GP appointments are taken by um, patients with long-term conditions. 70% of hospital beds are occupied by people with long-term conditions. As Richard talked about, these are often people that are suffering from multiple comorbidities. So they are complex individuals. Um, and we need, we need to, to make sure that from a political perspective, 
um, that the patients that are um, trying to manage long-term conditions are really very, very highly prioritized. So I know the government is behind the major condition strategy, um, and certainly we, we very much welcome that. Uh, interestingly, um, the, the six uh, health areas that have been chosen represent about 20% of patients living with long-term conditions, so it is a, a fairly um, small um, portion of the total patients that are, that are um, suffering. And so what we're here to talk about is going even wider than that, going broader than that, because a lot of the things that we'll potentially learn in focusing on those um, six major conditions are actually common across all. So if we have uh, a way of changing the structure, putting the patient at the center of treatment, um, that is not only a uh, solution for musculoskeletal diseases. It, it really you know, goes across a lot of the long-term care conditions. So we see this in three ways. The first is uh, the patient lens, making sure that the patient's at the center of how we organize care. The second is the HS, uh, excuse me, the NHS, um, and certainly with the, the amount of resources that are spent uh, and focused on long-term conditions, I think um, seven out of every 10 pounds that is spent in healthcare is spent treating uh, long-term conditions. So it's a, it's a, massive, uh, it's a massive focus. Uh, the question is, are we doing it well? So from an NHS perspective, what can we do to make sure that we're challenging ourselves to answer the question of um, improving NHS capacity so that patients have better access. And then I've been in the, the business um, meeting this morning um, here at the, at, uh, at the conference. And interestingly, almost every speaker has talked about the fact that we're in a crisis in terms of the fact that illnesses, not only physical but mental as well, are really uh, impacting uh, our economic ability to, uh, to grow. So whether you look at it from a patient perspective, you look at it from an NHS perspective or an economic perspective, this is an area that we need to focus on and that we need to tackle. Thank you so much. And uh, Georgina, from your perspective, within the, within the charitable sector, working for the Neurological Alliance, you previously worked uh, for MS as well. So, how have things changed from your perspective in dealing with the government? Do you think there has been a, a breaking down of silos? Um, to, to a certain extent, I suppose, if, if I'm honest. Um, so uh, my current role is at the Neurological Alliance, and we, we have more than 100 members uh, with an interest in a huge variety of different neurological conditions, from migraine to motor neuron disease to dementia to... Uh, autism, epilepsy, so there's a huge kind of variability in terms of conditions that are represented there. And then if I think about the kind of policies then that apply to that kind of huge variety of conditions, the major condition strategy is one really, really important one, and, and the shift that you were talking about earlier, um, Richard, in terms of actually looking at kind of issues that matter to lots of people beyond those kind of condition brackets, so things like pain management, polypharmacy, etc., uh, etc. Et it's really, really important. Uh, we've also, however, got things like a rare conditions framework and implementation plan underway. We've also got individual strategies now for acquired brain injury, ME and chronic fatigue syndrome, to name a few. We've had a nice review, et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
And I guess I don't quite see just yet the kind of joining up as I'd like to see, for example, across um, health and work. Uh, I think there are some real opportunities there, not least for the white paper that's being worked on um, at the moment. And then if I think about then, you know, my conversations both with members and, and people affected by neurological conditions in terms of what would help. So, uh, you know, real kind of political leadership, obviously, for, for neurological conditions is really, really important. So one of the things we want to see is a neuro task force, which is essentially about um, uh, government showing that they're listening and, and taking that cross-departmental approach to improving uh, treatment, care and support. Um, we've talked a little bit about kind of the impacts on employment. Uh, that absolutely. So, you know, we uh, ask people affected by neurological conditions every couple of years um, what, uh, what their experiences are in a whole range of things. And four out of ten people told us they'd had to give up work due to their neurological diagnosis. Um, and really alarmingly, 32% uh, had experienced discrimination in the workplace. So measures to address that, to address stigma, to ensure that employers are... Uh, uh, you know, making reasonable adjustments and uh, really delivering on inclusive workplaces is, is really, really important. Um, I guess, f final few comments. Anything that we can do to reduce the need for people to tell their stories over and over again is really, really important. So you talked about kind of integration of data uh, and experiences. That's absolutely critical. Again, if I think about neurological conditions, you're talking about a huge variety of specialties involved in any one person's care. Um, and actually, it's really traumatic to be repeating that, those things again and again. So anything we can do around that would be really, really helpful. Um, also, just looking at the kind of uh, uh, costs of, again, of, of neurological conditions, it was estimated that you could save about 10 million in a, emergency admissions if you thought about kind of preventative care, particularly for progressive neurological conditions like uh, Parkinson's, MND, MS. And that's just uh, if uh, local bodies achieve the kind of rates of their, their peers. So there's really, there really is some good stuff happening out there. It's about how we learn from that and kind of translate it into other areas. Thank you so much. So much of what you say is, is actually about making the way in which government works more human, <laughs> healthcare works more human as well. And I just want to ask you, Lord Markham, as we start our discussion, about I think probably the bit of government that is often caricatured as being the least human, which is the Treasury. And uh, th there's always been a, a standoff between the Treasury and the Department of Health and the NHS over money and the amount that uh, the health service seems to sort of suck away from, from the rest of government. How, how are you getting on with your uh, colleagues over in, uh, in the Treasury at the moment? Uh, really well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> We're besties. Yeah. Um, no, hey, it, it's always going to be a conflict. You know, when you think the health represents 11% of our whole economic spend, manufacturing is 10%, just to give you those... Sort, you know. Do you think that's too much? Um, uh, no. Um, uh, but, but, you know, it's how you spend it, basically, and, and really trying to, you know, use the way that you spend it. Now, to be fair to our Treasury colleagues, you know, as Guy was saying, they are, you know, really starting to look at where they can be spending to make a difference. So, you know, we're, we're doing, uh, Guy was talking earlier about musculoskeletal. <coughs> we're actually putting quite a bit of money into launching musculoskeletal onto the app. And the ability to actually, you know, there's stuff that we can all do behind that in terms of our everyday living to, to be better on that. And the Treasury have been very, very supportive about that. And, and, uh, Presumably because it saves money, because some of it is about sort of active living uh, and that sort of thing. 
And, and yes, and the, yes. So the economic, so so the economic benefit from that. I mean, we know in the digital space, for instance, a digitally mature trust will be at least ten percent more efficient in terms of output and productivity. And so, you know, Treasury Game is absolutely getting behind what we're doing in terms of the technology space. So I, I, th I think there's certain areas where they totally get it um, and uh, are, are very supportive. And they understand the prevention agenda. Again, Guy, I think you're about to come in on this. Well, can I just add a couple of quick points very briefly? No, I know please. You um, so the, the first is that we've already done the main intervention, which is the integrated care board. I mean, mm. the clue is in the name. The word integrated is there. The care, the wider wraparound care is there. That is basically saying to clinicians and to trusts, bring yourself together. Now, every political party, every expert has said repeatedly for about the last 10 to 20 years, do this. It's early days. We're year one of a new innovation. So there will be some ICBs that are working well, others that are interesting, right? But it was ever thus. But genuinely, that is the key intervention. The second is, have a long-term strategy on health and disability, which is the white paper that was referred to, uh, published earlier this year by my boss, Mel Stride. It sets out how government will try and address long-term health and disability conditions, particularly for those people on the cusp of employment and disability, and how it is we can navigate the way through that, but also how you then manage serious health conditions in the workplace and also at home. Now, there's a long way to go on that. It's out for consultation. But again, you've got a pathway on that. And I echo the point on neurological conditions. The scar I have from here to here is where a very nice surgeon took a small chainsaw to my head <laughs> to chop out the brain tumor that I had uh, when I collapsed in the House of Commons in 2011. Um, and I still have a bit of deficiency in this arm and various other bits of me because I, I had a pretty serious brain tumor. And yes, better interventions can make a difference, but also uh, increasing the research to try and take care of these things at an earlier stage does make a difference as well. I think, I think if I might just yes, come in there, apologies. The, uh, so the structures are in place, I completely agree with you, and um, even the ideas are there. So for instance, the NHS just put together a, um, uh, the Outpatient Recovery and Transformation Program, and they, it's a report that talks about really good ideas that have actually worked in practice. Uh, and so I think to a certain degree, it's right that you know, the local areas make their decisions, um, but there should, be, there should be at least some mandate uh, that ICSs look at these ideas and opt out of them, as we were talking about, Richard, opt out of these ideas um, instead of just sort of not having any mandate to, to look at these ideas seriously. Uh, because I think what we, what we see as an organization working in um, the area of long-term conditions is a lot of these good ideas that start locally, they never get scale. And that's, that is a challenge yeah. um, in this area. Is, yeah. is that partly because the NHS, my reading of it, has a bit of a, a difficult relationship with innovation in that it, you know, there might be innovation in one bit of the, the health service in, say, the Northeast, but that will never, as you say, filter down into the Cornish NHS and actually that there is a sort of there's an attachment to doing things the way we've done them for 30 years even if they are really rubbish ways of working. If I may it's, it's not that they've got a difficulty with innovation in their area so you know the old the old joke is that you know the NHS has more pilots than British Airways so um, <laughs> you know, so in in their area they can be very very innovative the challenge is exactly what you say, is that you know, the people in Cornwall think that they're doing it the best way and the people in Manchester think that they're doing it the best way. So, so getting that scale up and adoption 
is the you know in the year or so I've been doing this job, the word national in the National Health Service I've found is a you know the biggest misnomer. They are quite individual systems, and a lot of the things we have to try and do. And again, ICBs by taking up in terms of scale, they can take a more strategic view, and so they're you know they're working towards that. But getting that adoption um, of those good practices across the piece is one of the biggest challenges. Guy, can I just ask you about a proposal that was circulating uh, this time last year at Conservative Conference? Not, not some of the more interesting proposals. That I were was being slightly discussed, out of the loop last year. Yes, but okay, keep you going. were. Um, which was a, it, it pertains to your brief though, which is about um, people on the NHS waiting list who are also out of work because, and you mentioned musculoskeletal conditions. Yep. They physically can't get into work. They physically can't do the job that they love. They're stuck on a waiting list for, particularly with musculoskeletal, you know, maybe a year. There was a proposal to move those people up the waiting list so they can get back into work and have the quality of life they want. What what happened to that? So um, it's a very punchy call, and particularly, to use the Yes Minister expression, a brave minister that says, this cohort over here should have advanced access to the NHS and that cohort out of there should go at the back of the queue or be delayed even further. Now, the principle is wonderful. So we all get the principle is a great concept. The implementation of that, of is your condition genuinely sufficiently bad that you should be accelerated to the front of the queue? And then you get into a world of complications when somebody is effectively... Uh, whether they are not judging someone who is obese, but have made poor life choices, for example, such that they are therefore way more unhealthy than they should be because of their life choices fundamentally, as compared to those who've acquired a brain injury or other uh, condition that is no fault whatsoever of them and is just genes and bad luck. And so it's, it's a, like much of what Liz proposed, was a fantastically good idea in principle, but horrendously bad in practice. Uh, So that is not something that is going. What I'd like to say is I had taken, as the employment minister, who is trying really hard to work with my colleagues in a way that breaks down the silos, and it is dark in silos, and genuinely getting civil servants to work across the piece. Um, What I'd like to say is that the better way of doing that, bluntly, is to look at it from the ground up. And the ground up is such an individual is going into a job centre, normally every two to four weeks, depending on what kind of cohort they are, And they are seeing their work coach and they're saying, I'm struggling to get into work because of this. Well, fix the problems whilst they're in the building. Now, that, it seems to me, is eminently the way ahead. It's relatively cheap. It doesn't require major interventions. I don't need the NHS to do it because I'm going to recruit a private physiotherapy to sit two days a week in the job centre and see everybody. I've got the funding to do it. it's, It's complicated, but I'm driving this forward. And the flip side is then say to a GP, come on, let me help your waiting lists. Let me help this, that you've got your frequent flyers or however you want to call them, who are coming in all the time. Let's have a chat with them. Let's engage with them. And I mean, obviously, Steve needs to get the waiting list down. We all want that. There's a whole world of complications on that, which we're slowly addressing. But no, that policy is not going ahead. Georgina, I'm just interested. Guy was obviously talking about, uh, we're just talking about getting people back into work. Uh, you mentioned in your opening remarks people who feel, I think it was, did you say 32% of people felt they'd been discriminated at work because of their conditions? I mean, that's in one way shocking, but actually probably 
not that surprising. What, in what way could employers and perhaps the government, through its, its work with employers and engagement with employers, change their workplaces so that people aren't being cut out just because, again, you know, because of the way we've always done things? Is, you know, is working from home, for instance, one of those things that can really benefit some, some of the people you represent? Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, adopting flexible work practices and encouraging a, a culture of that is really, really important. And, and importantly, um, not just for people living with long-term conditions, but also people that care for people with long-term conditions as well. Mustn't forget the impact on, on friends and family as well. Um, creating inclusive spaces, for example, you know, adopting things like a disability network, that can be really, really important um, uh, too. Um, uh, greater education, uh, you know, encouraging charities, for example, to come into a workplace and talk about the realities of living with, uh, say, uh, a neurological condition can be really, really powerful. And, you know, supporting charities um, to do that is, 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 um, is inc incredibly important. But um, I guess more broadly, if you think about the kind of financial impacts, though, on, on, um, on somebody living with a neurological condition, you know, it costs £200 extra a week to live with a neurological condition that's different across different condition areas. So access to financial support, for example, personal independence payments to, uh, to uh, manage those extra costs is really, really important, as is maintaining the work that, you know, you, know, you love and you've been doing for many, many years. Um, and that's... To be frank, that requires quite a fundamental uh, revision of the assessment criteria and process, which is incredibly stressful for lots of people living with long-term conditions. Richard, the preventive agenda is it, it's now the big vogue. I mean, it, it's always had, uh, you know, it's always been talked about within healthcare. Bevan, Beveridge were, were very interested in it. Never really made it onto the main stage in, in the early days of the NHS. But it's now... It's now the thing that health-conscious politicians want to talk about. It's a bit like 3D printing or AI. It's one of those things that everyone says, oh, we're very interested in preventive <clears> agenda. <throat> um, how many politicians actually know what that means? How much is it actually to do about health and uh, actually about wider society, unhealthy society? You know, we, we've mentioned obesity. We, we do live in quite an obesogenic society. So is it really relevant to the NHS or is it something that the wider government needs to pay attention to? And are we ever going to get there? So not, So when Nye Bevan set the NHS up, he famously thought the NHS would end up paying for itself because our population would get healthier and therefore they would leave less healthcare. Now, unfortunately for Nye, that has not proven to be true because we're now spending, as has been said, significant amounts of money on, on, the, on the NHS. 20% of your health outcomes come from health systems. 80% come from outside. You won't fix health inequalities, health outcomes through just an NHS lens. I've been pretty vocal on the need to look at the wider determinants in population health. I think the government could be doing a lot, lot more on some of this, um, whether it's obesity, there's been some good work done on smoking, what can we do more on alcohol? And I think this comes back to the type of conversation that we need to start to have with people, which is we, we can't just have more of the same. A more, more, more. If you go back to the 2019 Conservative Manifesto, it was more of, we're going to get Brexit done, we're going to do more doctors, more nurses, more hospitals. And the voters, obviously, when you ask them what they want, that's what they want. But that is not going to solve this problem because the, the sustainability and equity of the system is going to need a different approach, which means looking out beyond the NHS and beyond the hospital into a wider, through a wider lens of prevention public health. And that's how you do prevention properly. I think the challenge with the way politicians look at prevention is they see it as saving money. And it doesn't necessarily, particularly in the medium term, save you money. 
Think about screening. If you do a really, really good screening program, you'll probably catch more people who mm. then you have to treat. Mm. So in the short term, it probably does go, your costs do go up. Over the long term, you'll improve health outcomes. And the big challenge for prevention as a message is it's often framed through the wrong lens. It's framed through a lens of, oh, we need to do prevention because we haven't got any, we haven't got any money. Now, mm. West Streeting on the Labour side is very big on this. It's his, big th- it's his big thing. But the challenge for anyone going big on prevention is, what are you really talking about? And how much are you going to spend up front? How are you going to cost that? And what's your savings going to, going to look like? And the Treasury doesn't really buy prevention investment arguments like that. It doesn't really score them like that. And that's why I think from a health perspective, you've never really been able to make the level of progress that you would really want to. And there's also, we've got 7.7 million people on the waiting list. 14% of England is on a waiting list. Talking about prevention when you've got one in, over 1 in 10 people on a waiting list is like, the system is completely overheated. Mm-hmm. It, you've got to try and twin track it, but it's, it's really, really difficult. So prevention is a really buzzy thing. It's the right thing to be talking about, but it's about getting into the real detail of what are the specific interventions and policies that you really are going to push in order to make the shift that you really, really want to see. And some of the stuff that Guy's just been talking about on work and health is really, really, is really great. When I was in government in 2018, there was a work and health unit. We couldn't even get a meeting between the secretaries of state. These, the great thing about what the guy is doing is you have two massive departments. Stop there, you're, just, you're making a great speech. <laughs> <laughs> Stop there, mate. You've got two massive departments there who, if they did work more closely together, could do loads together. So and you're so, saying that basically there was a big problem with two ministers who were working not just within the same postcode, but they could probably see each other out of their ministerial can, department windows, couldn't the, actually physically meet. Part of this was to do with the fact that the government's completely beaten on other things. But um, <laughs> things. It was, it was more, it was, it, it's really nice to hear that there is that more, that mm. greater connection and connectivity mm. because, yeah, you've got resource there that if you could make it work better together, you might be able to drive some better outcome, outcome out of it. But, yeah, prevention, what are you talking about? Yeah. But on, can I just touch yep. on the prevention point? Because I think it's a very serious one that flips into Labour conference, future governments and all that. Because it, the, 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 it's the schools and hospitals argument, right? Which is when you as a uh, minister or and you I'd say to your health trust, right, we're going to spend more on prevention, but I'm going to take from your budget over here and t- reduce your day-to-day healthcare budget by 10%, and I'm going to spend it more on prevention over here. Watch the squeaks then, yeah. because they'll all say, we want more on prevention, but obviously my budget's sacrosanct. Mm. And trust me, in government, it's exactly the same. Yeah, of course we've got to spend more on defence, but obviously you've got to keep funding health and education and everything else like that. And that that's, the, that's the really nitty-gritty, and it's not a treasury thing with no disrespect. Yeah. It's, a, it, it, it's really localised. It's, I run my local hospital, and you're saying to me, I have to spend more money on this, but I can't do that very, very difficult to do and requires very grown-up conversations. There are some uh, integrated care boards that are actually doing this, and, mm. but it's a long journey. And it can involve people thinking that their local hospital is going to close, which there's one way you want to sort of electrify well, a local oh, But, the, but then too. again, slightly, it's actually how you make... I come to Haltwhistle. Haltwhistle in Western Northumberland, not many people go there, I accept, but Haltwhistle in Western Northumberland, an old cottage hospital, would have closed unquestionably under the old days definitely would have closed. It's now an integrated hospital on the ground floor. It's run by the GPs locally. On the top floor, it's run by the Northumbria NHS. Totally integrated. The gerontologist comes down from Hexham and Newcastle once a week. Um, It is a totally integrated service. We're now looking at building a care home next to it. Now, that's proper integrated services. And actually, your your cottage hospital is just going to change dramatically. 
It's not going to be a cottage hospital anymore, treating all manner of conditions. Mm. You know, when I first fell off a horse as a jockey, my arm was fixed by my GP who put it in a plaster. Those days are gone. When I have a brain surgery, I want it done by a neurosurgeon who does three a week of chopping people's heads open. It's a very different health service going forward. Guy, I feel like you could give us a trip advisor of most of the NHS. <laughs> I've broken 28 bones. Um, I, was, I, was, I was not a very good jockey, so I became a politician, obviously. <laughs> but it is interesting, though, because we hear from patients that might be suffering from a, a rheumatological condition, but might also have um, you know, psoriasis, for instance and they wait to go to see the rheumatologist, the rheumatologist's office is literally down the hall yeah. from the dermatologist, and they have to wait six months to see the dermatologist. Mm. It's really, I, I know it, it sounds, it's baffling, but you say TripAdvisor, we almost need sort of some sort of concierge that can put this together so that the patient just goes once, and it benefits everyone. It's almost like the NHS needs more managers, who knew? <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, everyone, for coming. Now it's time for you to ask uh, some questions. Uh, I'm delighted to see that uh, this fringe on long-term health conditions has got so many people coming. I think that shows how, how much more important it's become politically as well. I think we have a roving mic. Yep, there's a roving mic there, and I can see someone who's got a green jumper on with their hand up. Thank you. Um, I'm here representing Parkinson's UK, and I'm a person living with Parkinson's, um, but I also have another long-term condition, and I'm interested in what you've just said there, because um, Guy will understand this. I live in Hexham, um, and I have two specialist teams overlooking my care. One of them is based in Northumbria Healthcare Services, and one is based in Newcastle. Now, I would just like them to talk to each other, because I can spend a lot of time going and talking to one who will give me information that will contradict what the other team will give me. So I waste an awful lot of time, and I waste their time. It would just be so useful if they could sort of coordinate some care around me. I mean, that's very personal, but it must save yeah. an awful lot of money for an awful lot of people if they could do that. Yeah. And you won't be the only person who experiences care in that way. So I'll take two more questions, and we can have a sort of... <laughs> group answer. Um, yep, lady there at the front. Hi, Emma. Um, I'm a GP in Oxfordshire. Um, I just have two questions, reflections. So the first is about um, collecting data. So I think we don't collect good data on um, on people being out of work because of a health condition. It's not coded. Um, it's not well collected. In the same way, we don't evaluate services based on, for example, return to work outcomes. So lots of rehabilitation, physical, um, psychological, psychotherapies, vocational rehabilitation. Um, I think that's probably something that would be very important to consider from a funding perspective in the future. And the second reflection is, um, is based on um, kind of inequalities in healthcare professionals um, across um, regions, which I think is a particularly big problem because in many of the places where you're going to have the um, problems of the very high rates of long-term conditions, very deprived places, there are even less healthcare professionals, um, especially in primary care. Um, and, um, and so I think, you know, the, there's a case to be made for a kind of liberalisation of employment models, of agenda for change, of pay, yep. to enable that, um, that kind of equality to be reached. Because lots of people um, are, you know, they are seen by specialists, but then a lot of um, further management is done yep. by shared care by GPs. And so if you don't have the follow-up, you need to titrate medications, etc., then that's just Fine. not going to work. Okay, thank you. Um, in fact, those were two quite, quite bulky questions, so I'll go along the panel and I'll take a few more 
um, once we've answered, then you can pick and mix the ones you want to answer and, and not. Georgina, we'll start with you and we'll just move along. Well, I, I totally agree with the point you made about um, you know not having to repeat yourself across yeah, two different um, specialist teams. Um, we hear that far, far too often. Um, uh, so anything we can do to kind of better integrate systems, the technology sure is there, but um, I don't think that's been kind of adopted at scale. So very, very supportive of that. And I'm totally, uh, I take the point about coding in particular. You know, if I think about uh, the world that I work in, in particular, it's kind of neurology. We don't do uh, outpatient coding particularly well. There's no, no kind of consistent consistency to that. Um, but equally, there needs to be kind of time to support clinicians to do that well as well, provided by the system. So but I'll leave it there. Thank you. Todd? I honestly don't think I have anything further to add from the points that have been made. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not sexy answers, but it is the fundamentals. So it is, you know, electronic patient record and data which glues up across the PEC. You've got all the information there. It is what we're trying to do with the integrated care boards where they have a holistic view. I mean, one of the best examples I've ever seen, I have to say, working across the piece was the old troubled families thing whereby, you know, they were looking at what was wrong and making real child centres. And what we're trying to do around uh, the thinking behind the major condition strategy to try and make it patient centred, but, you know, a long way to go on it. How easy is it to improve the technology when you have such a low capital spend on the NHS? I mean, compared to other uh, developed health systems, Britain's capital spend is, is tiny. Um, I mean, it is increasing quite a bit. I mean, the, you know, the, the, the thing um, I've learned from here, maybe not a major insight, but, you know, similar to what Guy was saying before, you know, there are so many priorities you could spend some money on. And actually protecting technology budgets is always really quite hard because... It's quite easy to, you know, when you're trying to fund a pay rise or something like that, because technology is a new thing. It's always quite easy to say, oh, well, we delay that another year. Um, you know, we just try really, really hard to do it because that is, you know, that is the lifeblood of, mm. you know, just having the data on how it's going to change. Again, not a sexy answer, but the sorts of changes you see those hospitals that really are data enabled and digitally savvy, you know, like chalk and cheese. Well, we gave you Jim. We can't give you sexy answers. I'm sorry about that, Richard. Yeah, only, only thing I'd add on the data collection point is in primary care in particular, I think the big call that is going to need to be made on the next round of the GP contract, which comes up next year, is what are you asking? And this is something I think the government is really pushing at, is how do we declutter some of what we're asking people to do? What we often do in the NHS is we build something a set of priorities, and then we build another set of priorities on top of that, and another set, and another set, and we don't decommission enough. And what we find in primary care in particular is it's such a labyrinth of initiatives, parts, that actually it becomes really, really difficult to actually stay on top of it. So I think the, the sort of wider strategic call for the next GP contract is what do you do about some of that, and how do you get GPs doing what they really are good at, and doing less of the things they don't want to do, and actually are adding less value. Uh, particularly when that contract negotiation will be very, very difficult because it's not going to come probably with a huge amount of additional resource. So you're going to have to find some efficiency uh, within that. So that's just a wider point on your data collection, which I think is worth thinking about. So, Guy, uh, you had a so, question uh, about your constituencies where, where we're things meeting aren't later, being don't worry. Um, can I, can I just take, I'll take the first point, which is that the lady, I think, was saying that we don't collect data on why people are out of work. Well, I mean, uh, Department of Work and Pensions, we do quite a lot of that, and we really, really do have a deep dive on that particularly in the disability space, not my portfolio, but I know enough about it that uh, there is a lot of effort being made to understand causation of people not being in work and why they are unfit for work. 
And then, now, it goes back to the same point, though. Are different departments talking to each other in necessarily and then uh, how it is you get the outcomes? And I think the, bit, the, the wider discussion of what we need to talk about in healthcare is through the lens of the patient in terms of outcomes. And we focus so much in the NHS on, have I fixed you, all right? Or can I fix you earlier by preventative health, right? What we don't do is all the stuff that drives all of us mad, whether we're dealing with the electricity board, the water board, the gas company, or frankly, the health service, where we struggle to speak to an individual, we struggle to get integrated care, and we struggle to get an outcome that is as good as, frankly, the health service itself. So they're really, really good at actually fixing you. So our health service is an emergency service which is outstanding. What we're not good at is then managing the individual's outcome. And I think the brave new world, very brave new world, and I've got to be careful not to create health policy when it's not my portfolio. No, would please be, do. Well, I knew you said that. Would be where the individual, us the taxpayer, us the constituent, our outcome is measured not just on the quality of the surgeon's knife, but also on the satisfaction, hard to define, I accept, with the process by which you engage with the NHS. Very difficult to define, but that has to be changing. ICB is my great hope that that will be the transformation, but also it has to be a sea change in NHS staff, bluntly, and they've got to talk to each other so that your dermatologist talks to the bloke down the road and they treat the patient as more important than the service itself. Fantastic. Okay, we've got time for, for another round of questions. I know that Guy has to run off to another event or possibly um, maybe a hospital appointment for another broken bone. <laughs> you know, um, bang on half past it. If we could keep our questions so short and focused that we can get loads in, that would be amazing. And uh, uh, lady at front here. Thank you. Janet Fisher, Live Music Now. We're a national music and health charity. Um, looking at that holistic support and preventative approach, but actually all four life stages, we've invested money in the National Academy for Social Prescribing. We've put out 35,000 link workers. Uh, we have not invested a penny in actual social prescribing programs. We're expecting big society to take those over. There is no money to create greening programs or financial services or music programs. We know they can support people with these 26 million people with their long-term health conditions. How are we going to look at a holistic approach to actually getting people off of waiting lists, addressing the NHS wicked problems, solving staff retention, which is also part of what social prescribing can do, and how do you get that money out of those budgets to actually deliver okay. that work? Thank you. Another question. Uh, I'm going to go for Mags. I think I've just asked women so far. Gender bias. Right there. Thank you. That's a really fascinating discussion, actually. I think it's very important. We talk about brain injury right now. Uh, my twin brother has had two brain tumours. And frankly, at times, it's been a car crash in terms of the joining up. Mm. Um, particularly, I would say, between the primary, the MDT, and the social care as well. And probably the personal... Uh, uh, benefits as well, you know, where you do that. More broadly speaking, what is the role of primary care, whether that's pharmacy, optometry, physio, occupational health? Okay, thank you. One more um, there in the nice coloured dress. <laughs> the dress well. Brilliant, thank you. Um, Thank you, Rach. Deborah Alcina, Chief Executive of Versus Arthritis. So, um, thoroughly delighted to hear so much mention of musculoskeletal conditions because it's been a long time coming. 
actually, and, and it's, it's long overdue. And lots of really good debate. Loved hearing about the employment advisors who are certainly involved in that programme and trying to ensure that um, physiotherapists are there to support people also to go back into work. I have a real concern. We know in arthritis and other musculoskeletal conditions that if you live in poverty, you're likely to develop arthritis or a musculoskeletal condition 10 to 15 years earlier, and you will be more likely to be living with multiple conditions. Now, my, my question and concern is this. There's a lot of talk about the um, major condition strategy, and I am an external advisory uh, group member of that, uh, that particular strategy. Um, the problem is this, it's supposed to be cost neutral. Mm. And all that we are talking about requires investment in order to make the shift through uh, to actually these new systems and ways of working. And mm. mm. um, also, just to say, love hearing about the ICBs, but if I think about musculoskeletal conditions, they're not mentioned in, our, in okay. our ICB strategies. So how do we address that? Great. And uh, um, Guy, I know you've got to go quite sharpish, so I'll start with you and then go back along the panel. Um, I, I, I would say that it's changing the focus of the NHS from being utterly focused on the operative procedure, the success of doing that, how many operations you do a day, and more particularly, the outcomes and success rates and failure rates. Now. That, that is important. Of course, it's the most important thing. But I would love, for example, that the person who runs discharge was like lauded and uh, promoted and made the most important person. Because so much about what we're talking about is how you do discharges really, really well into the community. Now, you can have the best GP or the best outcomes out, down the line, but if that is not integrated up, it is really difficult. Um, I take the point on um, arthritis and social programs. I'm not the minister on that, but unfortunately, one of the ministers is here. Oh. <laughs> and now he's going to go. Thanks. And now he's <laughs> Great. We'll get Richard, and then we'll move on to. Uh... Yeah, you're, you're, the, the story about the bouncing around is just one that is just so frustrating. It's just so frustrating. And it's why when you poll the public about what they want to see fixed by the NHS, waste always comes up really, really high. Mm. And then Isabel, you said is it we need to spend more on managers. And we only spend 2% of our budget on management. And again, the political narrative is always, we need more frontline, we need more staff. It's like, if the staff don't know where they're going or who they're talking to, it's, complete, it's, it's completely back to front way of thinking. If we actually invested more in better administration, some of that is going on, as Nick has talked about with the app, that could actually be a real game changer. On social prescribing, I was in government when we set up the National Academy for Social Prescribing, which is, I think, a great thing. Your point is always, your point is a really good one in terms of, but who's ultimately commissioning the service? And where's, where's the hard cash? Non-medical interventions are a real new thing for health systems. They're sort of like grappling with how do we interact, how do we measure an outcome? Because the outcome is not a stitching, it's a, maybe it's a qualitative piece, or it's a recovery piece, or it's a return to work piece. So it's evaluation and measurement of those programs and demonstrating their value, which will then get them commissioned more, and they are much more cost-effective in some ways, if you can, if you can prove that. Um, and then on the, on, the, on the MCS, I think the no cash thing is a really real, is a real problem because if you try and do these things cost neutrally, the, the history is you can't make them, you can't really make them work. So, and this comes back to a fundamental problem of government policy, which is if you're doing national policy but you're not putting any resource behind things, how does it actually deliver change? Because what the system will do, we have a system that is so hot, the system will go, that's great. 
but we can't do anything about it. So what you have to try and do is find the enabling mechanisms to join that conversation up. And where that budget's going to come from, we don't know. Now, Guy, you've got to run off, so I just want to say thank you to Guy. Uh, just give him a round of applause. Thank you for talking to us. Um, we'll, we'll carry on nattering for a, a few more minutes, but, but thank you so much to Guy and uh, Lord Markham. Thank you. Um, I, I mean, I think the thing coming through quite a few times is that you know, where we've been set up historically, and to some extent today, is that treatments are done to us. Yeah, and the treatments can be very, very good treatments, but it's centred around what treatment do you need? And what we're really talking about is how do we turn that on its head to make it patient-centric. Um, not an easy one. You know, again, not quick wins, but what we're trying to do in terms of the major condition strategy, and as I say, actually by giving people the information in terms of the app and the power at their fingertips, I think it's a really we can, you know, I say this tongue-in-cheek, but take back control of our own health. And you know, I think that's what we've got to look at doing here. Because it's only when you've got that information that, so that treatment isn't done to us, but it's something that we're in control of. That's the biggest change we need to move towards. Not an overnight thing, but that's what we want to do. Todd, do you agree with that point? Yeah, I agree with that point. I think, I think to your question, I would, I would sort of want to make three uh, comments. The first is that um, life sciences companies like AbbVie uh, partner um, with the NHS quite regularly. Um, and we are willing to invest as well in the, uh, in the shaping of healthcare um, if, if we're able to see that, that, that those ideas are getting scaled. Uh, and so I think the NHS, you know, we always talk about the, the healthcare budget, but you know, there's a lot of life science companies that are out there that are willing to partner, and part of that partnership is investment. The second thing I would say is that um, if I take medicines as an example, um, you know, I know you were talking about musculoskeletal diseases, and some of them are inflammatory in nature. Um, so, you know, medicines that come to market in the UK, they go through a regulator, the MHRA, they go through NICE, they're cost-effective um, uh, interventions. Uh, and so I think, you know, we're, we're sort of pushing the government, pushing the NHS to think about um, budgeting in a different way, potentially multi-year budgeting, where some of the in upfront investment for prevention may make a little bit more sense. Uh, early diagnosis investment upfront may, may make a little bit more sense. Uh, and we see that in areas like hepatitis C, where the government put together a hepatitis C program that did require investment upfront, but we've almost eradicated HCV in the UK now. Um, so there's a, there's a hard outcome that we can measure. So I think some of it has to do with the budgeting Certainly, as a company, we budget over years. We don't, we don't expect an investment in one is going to pay off the same year that we make it. And I think that there's, there's some thinking that could be done there. Georgina, finally. I guess just a few points. So uh, you talked about um, partnership in particular. Um, I guess I'm thinking about the third sector as well, who are having a really, really hard time at the moment. They can't pass on uh, additional costs that everybody's experiencing for heating, energy, Etc. Uh, Etc. Et um, to consumers, that's not how the model works, and in, um, uh, and their income is dropping. So we abso absolutely have to be supporting charities to fund research that's going to deliver treatments of the future, to provide a listening ear when people need it most, uh, provide the right information, and to campaign for change. That's really really important. Second thing was just about integrated care boards and, and integrated care partnerships. 
uh, in terms of uh, neuro, we, we also don't see a prioritization of neuro at integrated care board level. Too often it's, I don't have a neuroscience centre on my patch, therefore it's not my business. Um, that's just not true. One in six of us live with a neurological condition, therefore it is absolutely everybody's business. Um, and then the final point was just about, uh, I guess, listening to people affected by uh, long-term conditions and, and one of the ways in which we have that have to, uh, that's built into the system to do that is through integrated care partnerships. It's really, really difficult within those partnerships. You're one kind of organisation amongst hundreds trying to be heard as part of that. So that could be really, really difficult. So again, organisations need to be supported to engage in those. And then finally, just on, on data, utilising the, the vast kind of uh, patient experience data that we have and integrating that with some of the activity data that we've talked about and outcome data is also incredibly, incredibly important. Thank you. Thank you so much uh, to everyone who has come to this. Thank you so much to our panellists, to Georgina, to Todd, to Lord Markham, to Richard, and to, to the now absent uh, Guy. Uh, thank you for your questions. Uh, thank you to Abvi, our sponsor for this event as well. So thank you very much for coming.